This is not the easiest thing to do, is uh, to kind of slice these passages up. And as if you've had the chance to do something like this before and lead a study, it's often easier to speak on many verses than few. Uh, there's fewer places to hide uh, is one way to think about it. But anyway, as, as we left off there in verse 16, of course, the passage very much continues. So I'll read 16 again. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. If you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from vain or empty conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but rather with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, was manifest in these last times for you, who by him you believe in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. A lot of great things in those verses, but as you first read them, and perhaps as you're hearing them, if it's been a while since you have read them, it's not entirely obvious at first glance how they connect to the preceding verses. Um, obviously, central to this passage tonight is that he be holy, for I am holy. It really caught my eye in verse 16, it says, because it is written. You know, if you had a rule with your, your children and said, we do this or we don't do that or so on, and inevitably they might ask, well, why? And you say, well, because I wrote it down. Like, if you said that, it's laughable. And I appreciate that there were some chuckles here tonight because, like, what does that matter? You wrote it down, big deal. Entirely different when it's God speaking, though. God can simply say, it's because I've written it. That's why it's so. That's what makes it authoritative. So it's a call to it. But then who is this call for? Be holy. I think the answer for us is in the start of verse 17. If you call on the Father. Another way to think of that phrase would be, if you consider God your Father. This is not a command, and I want to be careful how I say this, but this command to holiness is not a command for every soul on the planet at this moment. Uh, of course, God wills that all men understand they need to be saved, forgiven, brought into the family of God, and so on. I'm not demeaning that at all. But this call to holiness is, is to his own. If you consider God your father tonight, this is a call to you. And so it's a special relationship. And I, I've been reflecting um, in the last month, especially, my father had passed away, and uh, thinking about that relationship. And, you know, when, when I acted in a certain phase of life when I was more under the domain of my father, if you will. If he was on my mind, did that affect my actions? And the answer is yes. I, I wouldn't do certain things perhaps, or I would say things differently or hang out with different people or situations and so on. We could come up with all kinds of different examples. But if, if someone, assuming you have a father that you had respect for and a healthy relationship, if he was on your mind, that would affect your actions. And so as Peter's saying here, he says, you know, if you consider God your father, that ought to shape our actions, because not only is our father, he is, as the verse says here in verse 17, our judge. Now, uh, anyone who has their own children, you understand there's that dual role, the father, the closeness of it, but there's also a respect of authority. And, and I don't know if you go around calling yourself a judge, but at the same time, implicitly into that role, there is a responsibility to uphold right and wrong and to impart these things. Um, I'm sure most people who are judges don't relish 
the thought of, of making decisions to, to one way or another. It's not an easy thing. It's not something to be taken lightly. But this is something that God does, judge of his own people. So again, in this verse, this isn't judgment for our sin here. This is judgment on believers, judgment on our actions, judgment and accountability for what we would face one day. Interesting uh, phrase there in uh, verse 17 again, before we continue. Who, who, if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work. I love that phrase. Uh, it's in the King James. I, I suppose many other translations probably say without partiality or impartially, which is, is true. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but whenever you get one of those little wacky phrases, it kind of makes me think and you wonder where it's coming from, without respect of persons. You know, we find that exact same phrase earlier on in the New Testament, and it was uttered by a man in Acts chapter 10. And he was up on the rooftop praying, kind of minding his own business, and he had a vision from above. Remember, there was a sheet that was lowered down with all these so-called unclean animals, and a voice spoke to Peter, Peter, and said, rise and eat. And he said, not so, Lord. I've never touched anything unclean. And, and he learned through that dream what God has cleansed, you shall not call unclean. And then, of course, if you're familiar with the story, uh, he very quickly found there was a couple men had, had arrived, sent by an important man named Cornelius to come join them in Caesarea. They didn't know Peter from Adam. They just said, we were told to come find you. We were told you have a message for us from God. Peter didn't have a nice sermon notes or anything prepared, but he went with them, was greeted by a room full of people, and the very first things he said in that room in Acts 10, 34 was this, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he who fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. That's the same truth here that we find in 1 Peter. He used that same phrase again. I, I can't help but think if Peter was reflecting back on that moment, because he said, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, the relationship, the lineage, and all of that. God looks down and he sees you as an individual soul. Are you someone who fears him? Are you someone who works righteousness? If that's you, that's accepted with God. He sees that, and that's important. It doesn't matter who you are or where you came from. And there's that phrase there again. I think it was a neat little tie-in to that time when Peter learned that very thing in his life. So of course, we're called tonight to holiness in this action. And one might ask then, God is the one who's saying this, is God trustworthy? Is it worth it? And I think the next few verses try to address that. So verse 18, we read, as much as you know, you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, two of the most precious metals known on earth. Uh, probably you have some form of silver or gold or have seen it or know it, and it, it's valuable. And things that are valuable often are so because of their rarity. I, uh, as a child, and, and still do a little bit, uh, used to love collecting hockey cards and, or sports cards in general. And you know what I mean? Little, little pieces of cardboard is more or less all they are. But in August, you may have seen in the news, there was a 1952 Mickey Mantle baseball card, piece of cardboard, it sold at auction in a record price of $12.6 million. Piece of cardboard. Um, why is it so valuable? It was rare. There were so few of them. There's so few still in condition after all those years, and obviously somebody really wanted it. We're not here to learn about baseball cards. But the point is rarity implies value. And so silver and gold are very rare. Now, far in excess of the value of silver and gold is 
the rest of the verse, the, the precious blood of Christ in verse 19. Now, in the audience tonight, I don't need to, I'm sure, defend the, the merits and virtues of the precious blood of Christ. This is the only time, believe it or not, we find those two words linked together, though, precious blood. Yet, there are many, many hymns. Perhaps you can even think of some. I, I wrote down a few verses here. The precious blood of Christ, precious, precious blood of Jesus shed on Calvary. The cross, the cross, the blood-stained cross, the cross of Christ, I see, it tells me that precious blood, and so on. So this has been an inspirational thought for, for many a hymn writer through the years. Blood is not something we would normally think of as, as precious, um, but obviously in the context of our salvation and the payment for our souls, there is no greater price. God could have, to, to tie in now to this other verse here, the fact that it said perishable or corruptible silver and gold. What if the price of our salvation, just hypothetically speaking, were $1 million. You needed $1 million of gold bars, let's say. If that were the price of our salvation, you know, I probably wouldn't be here tonight. I would be at the bank guarding that $1 million of gold bars, because if I knew that's what I needed at the end of this life to be accepted into heaven, I would be terrified of fire or theft or any other thing that could touch those things. But think then, the precious blood of Christ, of course it is rare, of course it is unique, and it's that of our Savior, and for that reason it is precious. It's also untouchable. It is a payment that cannot be destroyed. Every possession you own on earth could be taken away. We hope that's not the case. That would be a tragedy, obviously. Nothing can touch the blood of Christ. It's finished forever, permanent. And so that's why the contrast here was given by Peter. Corruptible silver and gold or perishable. Yeah, in worst case scenario, even they could be taken away. Nothing can touch the payment for my salvation, the blood of Christ. That's, uh, I appreciated thinking about that. He goes on to say, talking about the traditions inherited from your forefathers, uh, that was in reference to the Jewish tradition. I remember his, his audience, as we were introduced to by Tim a few weeks ago, this was to the Jews dispersed in the land. And we have been redeemed, obviously, at great cost. So an unparalleled cost was paid for our soul. But then in verse 20 and 21, we said, is it trustworthy? Well, God paid a significant price to redeem you to himself. So that's argument one. Argument two, verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last days for you. Reminding us that the plan of God's salvation was not an afterthought or a reaction to a situation gone sideways. Before we ever existed, before the entire creation existed, God had appointed the Lamb of God who would one day take away the sins of the world. You're part of a great plan. God knew that, and he knew you would be redeemed, and he knew that one day you'd be brought back to him, and, and so on. Uh, when I picture and remind myself of that, like it just takes me out of the muck of, of daily life and the struggles with sin and so on. I'm part of such an important plan uh, that God went to so much trouble, frankly, to bring to pass. Obviously, he is trustworthy. And then the last aspect of this, verse 21, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead. I often try to put myself into the story as you're reading the, the accounts in the Bible so you can appreciate how people would have reacted. And just imagine for the disciples the moment that Jesus Christ died, the devastation. Their hope was dead. He was everything about their hope. Hope for salvation, hope for redemption, hope to overthrow the Romans. It was all gone. 
And uh, over and over again, we know he would tell them what was going to pass, but let's not throw stones. We don't always learn things the first time either, and, and they were no different. So they were devastated until they saw Jesus Christ back to life. The resurrection was the proof, as he says, he was manifest for in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope might be in God. So the, the idea that God created this plan long before the world ever existed, and you're part of it. And then further to that, even when hope seemed as it was dead, God raised Jesus Christ back to life to show to you once again how valuable and important you are to him. So if I could summarize then, it was building off of where Gideon left us there. I think the crowning jewel of the segment tonight is that, that command, could I say to us, be holy for I am holy, directed to those who consider God their father. And if that's you tonight, our call to each of us is a call to holiness. And why? I could say because of the price that he paid, the precious blood of Christ, because of the plan that he made long before the foundation of the world, and because of the power he displayed in raising Christ back from the dead, we are called to holiness.